Welcome to the ABR podcast, where some of Australian book reviews contributors discuss major issues or read their reviews and creative writing. My name's Georgina Arnott and I'm assistant editor at ABR. If you enjoy these podcasts, think about subscribing to the magazine. Those 25 and under can do so for as little as $25 for the online version or $60 for print plus online. Greetings, podcast listeners. My name is Christopher Menz, and I lead the ABR Cultural Tours, which we present in association with Academy Travel. Next up is a tour of the 2023 Adelaide Festival and Writers' Week. Join myself and ABR editor Peter Rose for nine days of concerts and performances and guided tours of museums and galleries, plus sessions at Writers' Week and ABR's unique brand of conversation and conviviality. Full details are available from the Academy Travel website. See you in Adelaide. Welcome to this week's ABR podcast. This week is devoted to Books of the Year. In our December issue, you will have noticed that about 40 critics with strong associations with the magazine nominate some of their preferred books of of the year. And today I'm joined by two of them, BJ Silcox, literary critic and ABR board member and a writer herself based in Canberra and also from Canberra at the Australian National University, Frank Bongiorno. Both BJ and Frank have long associations with the magazine and are senior contributors. And Frank's new book, Dreamers and Schemers, A Political History of Australia, recently published by La Trobe University Press, is indeed much cited in the Books of the Year feature. BJ and Frank, welcome to the ABR podcast. Thanks so much. And welcome back, I should should say. Really, every newspaper and magazine around the world now runs one of these Books of the Year uh, features, and we've been doing so for at least 20 years. I think we all have a bit of fun nominating these books, but what do you both look for when you cite something as a book of the year. BJ, would you like to go first? It's my absolute favourite time of the year. I love the book of the year lists because they're so beautifully subjective and you get a sense of where everyone's hearts have been during the year. But what I'm looking for in a sense is a book that will almost be a core sample of the year, of the things that mattered. And I think that's why the book lists are so wonderful as you get this deep dive into the things we cared about, into the things that mattered to us and resonated with us. So it sort of stands as like a, almost like a time capsule, these these lists. So I'm looking, as I do as a critic, people think you go into criticism because you want to criticize, but I'm looking for awe. So I tend to list the books that elicited that sense of having something alive in them, some amazing heartbeat. They had blood and guts and yeah, I'm looking for something visceral that, you know, discombobulated me or shook me out of my complacency. That's what I'm always hoping to find. Frank, what about you? Uh, Do you enjoy being discombobulated? (laughs) I don't know if I could, I could beat that. Um, I look for a book with the wind in its sails, um, in, in other words, a book that seems really timely, that speaks to the present and the future as well. I mean, obviously, a lot of the reading I do is history, 
uh, and, and indeed even uh, the fiction that I read is very often historical fiction. And I'm always looking for what I call sense of vision, I think. And by that, I mean a kind of a, a vision of the good life, of, of how the world is as, as well as how it how it should be. And I mean, that probably sounds a bit odd for a historical work, but I think the ones that in fact, to me are the most attractive and the ones that I tend to engage with do have a kind of vision of the good life and and perhaps of, of how we might live better at, at their heart. And, uh, you know, as I look down my list of both fiction and, and history for this year, I think that all of the books that, that I selected would qualify in that sort of way. Apropos of that, Frank, why don't you tell the listeners what you did most enjoy this year? Thanks. Yeah, well, the ones that I chose, I mean, all of them in some ways, sort of are boundary writers, you know, sitting at that boundary of, of history and fiction, fiction writers who are pushing outward a sense of, of what, I guess, the historical novel can do, but also historians who I think are, are also, you know, very conscious often of the fictive qualities of what they're doing, the speculative qualities. And, you know, a historian able to do that really in command of the material, um, I think, can give us a real tour de force. So, the ones I chose this year, certainly among the, the historians, I chose Anna Clark's Making Australian History, which, you know, is a history of Australian history. And that could have been, I guess, a very orthodox survey that sort of, you know, began perhaps um, the early colonial period and went through to the present. But of course, it, it's not that kind of history. It's one that grapples with deep time. It's one that grapples also with the range of ways in which history and historians work that uh, history can be something more than a book with black words on a printed page that it can be a poem that it can be aboriginal rock art a really democratic sense of history that infused that book um again among the historians i also looked um, and selected alan atkinson's elizabeth and john which is a history of the MacArthur's, the MacArthur family i guess we'd call them these days a kind of power couple Really, you know, obviously the most prominent and important family in colonial Australia, certainly early colonial Australia. And again, I think Alan Atkinson, a very fine historian who's been working on the MacArthur's really for five decades, pushes outward our sense of what history can do, what it can say, what it can be. It has very powerful personal speculative dimensions. He tries to you often have a sense of someone looking from inside a marriage outward rather than outside in. I mean, Alan talks about history from within being his goal, you know, as distinct from, say, history from below, that idea associated with uh, social history from the 1960s onwards. So I found both of those histories great. I also enjoyed, and I don't read a lot of sports history, but I loved Marion Stell's The Body Line Fit. I won't call it a, a book about women's cricket, but she specifically asked us not to do that. There is just cricket, uh, women cricketers of the 1930s, and a wonderful insight into the social and political history of the period in terms of class, race, gender, all sorts of things. The novels, I'll, I'll speak perhaps more briefly, but I, I enjoyed Paul Daly's Jesus Town, which is a novel that grapples, I think, with the corruption of the soul in many ways, but also the corruption of the soul of a country, not just of an individual. And uh, it grapples valiantly, I think, and you know, with great skill, a number of the moral dilemmas around things like cultural theft in modern Australia. And then finally, I think I've covered them all. I, I much enjoyed Chris Womersley's The Diplomat, which um, is a kind of sequel. I think the ABR reviewer calls it a coda to his earlier Cairo, published in 2013. Cairo was, a, I guess, a classic Elden Roman, um, very much around or centred on the theft of the weeping woman from the uh, National Gallery of Victoria um, in the mid-1980s. And 
and the diplomat really takes up two of her characters in that in that earlier novel. It's a much darker book that I think permeates it by this sense of grief and decay. Of course, I, I lived in Melbourne in the, the mid-80s. It was probably about the, the same age as the protagonist in Cairo. I'd, I'd moved on by 1991, but still spent a lot of time there. And I think both books actually capture a certain aspect of Melbourne life in that period particularly well. Yes, it was such an amazing yes. theft, an audacious theft, wasn't it? I'm so pleased that you and I think a couple of other people nominated Ellen Atkinson's book on the MacArthur. So I've not read it yet myself, but have the fondest memories of working with uh, Alan at OUP and published the first couple of volumes of his wonderful book, Europeans in Australia. Frank, just as a, a bit of a footnote to your nominations, you're a very busy teacher and administrator at ANU and a prolific historian yourself. How much fiction do you read? I mean, what place does that play in your reading or your diversion from all those roles that you play? Yeah, it, it's variable. I mean, like a lot of people in a, a little club, a very informal one, where we meet about every six or eight weeks and a mixture of Australian and, I guess, non-Australian fiction. So that's one of the, the places where I read fiction. But, yeah, um, look, it, it plays, um, I wouldn't say a huge part in my reading life, but it plays a significant part and perhaps an important part. I mean, I, as a historian, value great writing. I'm always conscious, again, of that kind of fictive and, and speculative quality of all good history. I mean, history that doesn't have that, I tend to find pretty pretty dull. I think character development, storytelling are just central to history. And so I, I do find reading novels an important part of my life. Um, I guess my most elaborate effort in, in recent times was the, I guess it must be about 2,000 pages of Hilary Mantel during lockdown. I'd, I'd never read any of them, I'm sort of ashamed to say. So I began at the beginning with Wolf Hall and went right through to you know her final volume in that trilogy. And it was a wonderful reading experience. I don't think I'll ever see political history in quite the same way again after 2,000 pages of Tudor England and Thomas Cromwell. So, yeah, look, it is an important part of my life, although I don't do as much of it as I would like to do really because of the pressures of my life as a historian. Yes, and it's great to have an opportunity to reflect on Mantell briefly in this podcast because she, of course, died in recent months. And like you, I was um, very struck by the Cromwell novels and in reviewing the first or second of them in ABR remarked on her supreme command of the workings of power. Pretty remarkable for a novelist. I mean, novelists are usually so tremendously isolated, but this woman understood the machinations of courts and uh, to an almost terrifying degree. And I think it just gave that portrait of Henry VIII's great minister such power and authenticity, a, a really a remarkable achievement. And also, I think, Peter, an example of what it is when we make the case for why fiction matters, what a novel can do that yeah. history cannot, the sheer amount of empathy and immersion and the extraordinary richness of of placing us in that world. That's one of the things that makes novels extraordinary and necessary as we have historical conversations. Absolutely. BJ, your nominations are never usual. Please tell us, uh, <laughs> <laughs> please tell us what you really enjoyed reading this year. Well, the least usual of the things I picked this year was actually a zine, which was written by one of Australia's most brilliant and acerbic critics, Anwen Crawford, who writes for ABR. One of the things that's most difficult to talk about when you're a writer is money. 
And that reticence to talk about money, that decorum, actually really does a disservice to the Australian literary community because we don't speak about how difficult it is to be writers and to carve out sustaining careers, particularly if you're a writer that does not come from money. And increasingly, if you don't come from money, you don't have any capacity to be a writer. Anwen has written this extraordinary I would call it a long essay, which she published as a zine privately, and you can get as a PDF from her website, where she actually lays out what she was paid for the work she has done. And it's trying to open a conversation about what it means to be a writer in this country when we're often told that it's a hobby or we should be grateful to be able to do it at all or that our services should be free and just exposure should be the thing we're paid with. And so I think it is essential reading because it lays out the whole brutal exploitative mess, which is really ruining Australia's capacity to tell its own stories and mortgaging the country's literary future because we are cutting off the arts for whole generations and whole classes of Australian writers. So I will passionately make the case that that needs to be read and it needs to be a starting point as the as the government considers its new culture policy and as we talk and think about what it is we're offering young writers today, the fact that it's possible for a young working class kid in Australia to believe he could be the prime minister, but not believe that, that she could be a writer. I think that's a pretty astonishing place to be in culturally in this country. So that's my first pick. It's incendiary and important, and I urge everyone to read it, but also to pay for it because Unwin has put the work in it deserves the... I can never say this bloody word. Remute, remuneration? Remute, I can't say it. It's my it's my tangle word. So that's my first of the picks. And my passionate rant, my polemic over for today. The other two things I picked were things that I said before that just felt like they had kind of blood and guts in it. And the first is an amazing shape-shifting fable about the power of books. And it's a kind of literary hoax that's perpetrated by two young girls in post-war France who are living in this crumbling provincial village. And they know that the only thing that awaits them as they grow up are bad marriages to dirty pig farmers. And they decide they concoct between them this novel that ends up being published, sort of a kind of a story of the things they know that happen in the dark. And it becomes this French sensation. And so it's the story of what happens to these young girls who've concocted this story. And it is this strange menacing fable that's sort of reminiscent of Eleanor Ferranti, but then also moves and shifts and you think it might go somewhere really dark. It might be sort of a Shirley Jackson novel, and then it ends up being something entirely of its own. And it's called The Book of Goose by Yuyan Lee, who's a really interesting author who I had not read anything before. And as I said in my entry for ABR, it just made me ravenous. I just had to read everything that she'd written after I read this book. I just thought it was so extraordinary. And to give you a little taste, there's this paragraph at the beginning because she begins by sort of conjuring this mythical knife. And she says, you can slash a book. There are different ways to measure depth, but not many readers measure a book's depth with a knife, making a cut from the first page all the way down to the last. Why not, I wonder? And it sort of feels like this dare, like get your knives out, cut into the heart of this book, see if you get your hands bloody. And I just loved it. 
And then the next book I picked was the most ridiculous title, but I love it. It's called The Earth, Thy Great Exchequer Ready Lies. And I think you have to say that title with a little bit of pomp behind it because it is quite elaborate. But it's a wonderful short story collection by the British short story writer, uh, Welsh short story writer, sorry, Joe Lloyd. And it's just this fantastic collection of stories that are all perfect, magical, alchemical little gems. And her language is somehow both archaic and new at the same time. I felt like I was reading something that had been unearthed, but at the same time belonged 10 years in the future. And that's an extraordinary feeling when you're reading an author to have no idea where they were going to take you, but to be so excited to go there. And it's always really difficult to sell people on short stories because for some reason, there's this sense that they're the thing you do is a training ground before you write real things. And I think that's such a missed opportunity to see them for what they are, which is the absolute perfect balance between all of the craft of novel writing and all of the craft of poetry sort of collide in short stories because you have to have the full command of writing tools to be able to write something so small and so perfect. And I think that short stories do something that novels cannot, that poetry cannot, and that we should love them as their own form. So I will make another, sorry, I said it was only going to be one polemic. There's a second one, another <laughs> passionate plea for people to reconsider the short story. And they're my two. I should mention that we will list all the titles under discussion on the website in the podcast area, so you can read up on these books. It's worth noting that Decorum Serves the Rich by Anwen Crawford, the zine that you talked about, was also nominated by your friend Michael Winkler, who was much, of course, in the news books of the year last year with his uh, novel Grimish, which I only caught up with this year, so I can squeeze it in there. And what an audacious and hilarious and inventive novel that is. BJ, you talked about that kind of ravenousness when you discover a new author, how you just kind of must read everything they've done. Last year for me, it was a surprise to me, a newcomer. I hadn't caught up with the Damon Gelgut uh, yes. phenomenon until he won the Booker Prize with The Promise. And I've really spent a lot of this year reading his other novels. And fortunately, he's very prolific. And I'm looking forward to a new one surely next year uh, in a strange room. And that remarkable novel about E.M. Forster, Arctic Summer. But this year, my discovery, if I can put it like that, was someone you pointed me to late last year was Elizabeth Strout, whom I'd not, again, not read. And really, I can't keep away from Strout at present. It, it's become quite quite an obsession. Fortunately, this year, we had two novels from, from Strout, the American author, O. William and Lucy by the Sea, two more in the Lucy Barton series, and uh, one of which was, as we know, shortlisted for the Booker Prize, uh, William. Peter, what is it about Strout that makes her so compulsive in a way? I mean, following Hilary Mantel's death, I'm almost inclined to think of her now as the most exciting <laughs> novelist working in English. I think she's doing something Austen-like in its subtlety humour. But this modest kind of profundity. I mean, it's a pretty remarkable combination, it seems to me, of gifts for a novelist. It really is. And every time she writes a new book, I think, oh, my God, will this be the one that ruins it? 
because she's yes. written so many perfect novels and you think she can't possibly write another perfect yeah. book. And then she writes another yeah. perfect book and they are perfect, these beautiful novels. I think I had the privilege of reviewing O. William for the TLS and I came to the conclusion that the kind of magic of her is that she writes these gentle novels of ungentle things mm. and she she somehow manages to capture in books that feel so quiet things that hurt us so deeply and they're not violent books or traumatic books except they do capture deep social violences and deep social traumas but in these beautiful connected novels of interconnection they're really novels that speak to mercy and grace and what is deeply human and tender in us and I started the Lucy Barton books thinking that I knew what I was in for and found myself at points in all of them weeping which mm. is not uh -huh. something that happens to me very often but they're deeply affecting novels because yeah. they're guileless and that's a really extraordinary thing to pull off in fiction, a sense that you have a character who has no deceit about her, who is being so incredibly honest with you. Mm. We talk a lot about kind of unreliable narrators and how delicious they are, but there's something also delicious about earnestness, about the trust that Strout manages to create, this space where you believe entirely that you are part of that world and privy to the quiet thoughts of the people that she writes about there's a real intimacy a gentleness i yeah i find her astonishing and also i'm struck by the subtlety and sureness with which she drip feeds us clues about the violences the sadnesses the horrors in some cases that have that have happened. I mean, she's working on such a scale and she has such confidence. I, I imagine uh, the Barton novels could go on for another 10 or 20 years. I was reading one of them, I think it's Anything is Possible, where Lucy finally goes back to visit her two siblings, back to the family house where Horace happened. And only there, kind of on about page 118 or something, do we learn some of the kind of monstrosities that were visited on those children. Yeah, she's quite remarkable. Frank Bongiorno, one book that has won uh, plaudits in Books of the Year this year is uh, Jim Davidson's book about uh, the two grey quarterlies of Melbourne, the Mianjin and Overland and their creators. I wonder if you would like to talk a little bit about that book. Yeah, I mean, Jim's written a terrific book, em Emperors in Lilliput, um, which is about Yes, the two uh, little magazines, I guess was the term that, that's been used, uh, Mianjin and Overland, and also the, I guess, cultural impresarios that presided, Glenn Christensen and, and, and uh, Stephen Murray-Smith. But, yeah, look, it's, it's a grand book um, based on prodigious research, and, and Christian Davison is a great prose stylist. I mean, biographer uh, of W.K. Hancock and yeah, a, a fantastic writer um, over so many years. The book itself, I think, um, gives such a wonderful entree, I guess, into that, that 20th century, particularly mid-20th century, I think, Australian culture. It's a growing sense of cultural nationalism and yet in a, a context, an international context, that um, where international standards 
was seen to be important in Australia, that Australia couldn't afford to become insular, it couldn't afford to shun the best that was being thought and said and written in the world. These were, you know, also very outward-facing journals when we consider that they were journals that also, you know, professed the kind of cultural nationalism. And so, yeah, look, his book is rich with both ideas and, I think, personalities. We encounter, I guess, you know, all of the great names or certainly a bulk of them in Australian literary culture and, and indeed beyond that, I think, in the middle decades of the 20th century. So it's a really admirable way, I think, of considering a culture, taking stock in a way of a culture. It reminds us of the lost world. I mean, the kind of status, I think, that particularly Mianjin had in its heyday was extraordinary and, and obviously belonged to a kind of different cultural and technological order even from the world in which literary culture lives in Australia now. But I found it a, a wonderfully readable book. It was one I read during my COVID bout in, in uh, early May. I read it in proof, actually. And, and uh, you know, I found it an incredibly absorbing book that also, you know, took me back. I mean, I was an undergraduate in the late 1980s. And I think that was a period where these the little magazines still had very considerable cultural authority. And, uh, you know, it sort of took me back to to that. And I was able to to see that period again in a, in a quite different perspective, a longer perspective. A really formidable work of cultural history and biography. And it's a book that Tom Griffiths and Judith Brett, herself a former editor of Mianjin, nominated in Books of the Year. BJ, I think you've been reading Damon O'Brien. I have been reading Damon O'Brien, who is this incredibly talented Australian poet who seems to have scooped up almost every poetry prize known to man. Inclu and including the Porter Prize. A few including the Porter Prize. And I encountered him actually at a poetry reading in Canberra, which is really fantastic to sort of be sitting in an audience and have no idea what's about to hit you. And his beautiful debut collection, Animals with Human Voices, is out this year uh, with Recent Work Press, which is a local Canberra press, which is also just a wonderful shout out to the little presses that make the great books happen in this country. And it's just this incredible collection of poems with a kind of creaturely connection, which reminds me of Keridan Dovey's All the Animals that came out a few years ago, these collections of essays and short stories told from the perspective of famous animals from history. Damon kind of does the same thing, but his are, how should we say it, they're prophets and harbingers of what's to come in the late sharp edge of the Anthropocene. So we have trilobite prophets who are able to tell us what's coming for us and apocalyptic toads and goats with sort of devil worship on their mind. And it's all dark and menacing and fantastic and absolutely in my strange Gothic wheelhouse. And I absolutely loved it. I thought it was magnificent. The sense that we are starting to get the grand and horrific irony that at this time of climate crisis, we seem to have some of the most extraordinary writing of ecology and creatures and our own interaction with the natural world is being interrogated in a way that's more rich and interesting than ever has been before, but comes at a great human cost. So he sort of sits in that space of someone who's writing eco-parables but is also capturing that sense of paralysis and hopelessness and also the kernel of hope that we have that perhaps things might be different. So a really extraordinary, marvellous collection. I'm really glad that you mentioned Damon's 
volume and also referred to that admirable publisher recent work press which does such interesting things and it's probably only third or fourth year i think and did also published a book by an abr rising star closely associated with the magazine and, and also our caliber prize winner uh, it's published theo l's book of poetry who won our caliber prize a Indeed. couple of years ago with and, yep and anders Villani's totality doing really interesting interesting work i think we should mention i think one of the notable poetry collections of the year is The Jaguar by Sarah Holland Batt. Sarah, of course, is chair of ABR, but that's not why I'm mentioning it. I'm one of many people with the highest regard for the book. And we know much of the subject matter well, the decline and abusive treatment of her late father. But what she does with it in elegiac lyric ways is very remarkable and it's made it one of the notable books and the title poem itself is superb that's a uqp book in poetry of Apparently course i'm not allowed to talk about sarah's book at all because i have signed a non-disclosure agreement with the stella prize which i'm judging this year so i'm reading 220 novels and poetry and non-fiction by australian women and non-binary people in the next sort of three months so sarah's book is in contention for the stella so we know what you're going to be doing over summer. In poetry internationally, of course, it was very much the year of T.S. Eliot, 100 years since the publication of the seminal poem of the 20th century, The Wasteland. And with it has come a pretty remarkable brace of books, particularly Lyndall Gordon's book, The Hyacinth Girl, T.S. Eliot's Hidden Muse, which I and a few others uh, including Francis Wilson in London, nominated as a book of the year. This tells us a lot more. We knew a certain amount about the friendship, romance, whatever it was between T.S. Eliot and the American Emily Hale. But it was only when Lyndall Gordon and other scholars two years ago could finally get their hands on the uh, Hale cache of all of Eliot's, I think more than 100 letters to her over 40 years or whatever it was. It was only then that we became fully aware of the extent of that kind of infatuation on Eliot's part, deep love on hers, that of course led ultimately to a great shock for her when he was free to marry when he failed to do so. And then 10 years later, chose to marry his secretary, some 40 years younger than he. In the second book, Erica Wagner, maybe Wagner, I don't know, writes about the other, the third great affair, if you like, in Eliot's life after his first failed marriage to a married Trevelyan. And that tells us a lot more about the extent of that friendship too. So these are fascinating additions to the T.S. Eliot literature, which seems to be absolutely unstoppable. Frank, is there any other book before we close that you would like to extol or bring to listeners' attention? Um, yeah, put two others, Peter, um, you know, sort of spring to mind. I mean, I think a number of people mentioned Julianne Schultz as the idea of Australia, which I think is um, an important intervention in a, a series of cultural debates. Again, it really, you know, it's such an important time when we're considering the Uluru Statement from the Heart. We've had a change of government and I think a lot of really pressing debates around issues like literary culture and cultural policy in Australia, an, an area that Julianne has, has obviously engaged with over many decades as a leading commentator and indeed a, 
practitioner um, in those fields. So I think the idea of Australia is um, well worth people's attention, perhaps over the summer. And a book I read quite late in the year um, is James Curran's Australia's China Odyssey, which is a history of Australia's relationship with China, largely since the Second World War, with, I think, an emphasis on the period since the 1970s and, and the Whitlam era. And again, a really... I think a powerful example of the ways in which a historian in command of an archive without, you know, sort of access to grind on the relationship with China is able to provide really a way through, I think, some of the controversies of the present. I mean, this is obviously one of the most fraught areas of public discourse in Australia at the moment. And and I think James Cohen's book, you know, is a a very powerful example of the way in which a return to the archive and a a reconsideration, I think, of the present relationship in a wider historical context, you know, going back and, you know, sort of travelling over that interland of of a much longer relationship going right back to the, well, the 18th century, I suppose, but certainly the 19th century, as he does. I mean, he certainly returns to even the colonial period can provide some really powerful insights into the present. So I certainly commend that as a a terrific example of, I guess, what we might call contemporary history. One of the functions of columns like Books of the Year is to steer listeners to books that they might otherwise overlook. I wouldn't be overlooking the book that uh, Michael Hoffman from America recommends, which is Brigitte Alubis's much-anticipated biography of Shirley Hazard, just published. Uh, what a service that is for we lovers of Shirley Hazard. But a book I might not have read is by the Irish writer Claire Keegan, probably the most gonged book in this feature, Small Things Like These, which, like O. William, was shortlisted for the booker, even though it's only a slip of a, a book, a novella really, maybe only about 30,000, 40,000 words. But what remarkable words they are. This is about the horrific chapter in modern Ireland from 1920s to the 1970s. I think the Magdalene laundries weren't closed down about these horrors, done with the greatest subtlety, but an extraordinary book and one that I think will resonate and for decades and one that I encourage people to read, that small things like these. BJ, before we close, any further tips from you? Well, actually, I wanted to ask you about one of the things that we talk about in the Books of the Year feature is that it gives us a chance to encounter books we wouldn't normally encounter. And the Books of the Year that are mine this year I were both books I wouldn't normally encounter because it was a book I was asked to review and then also a book that was sort of placed into my hands by booksellers. But one of the books that I think really resonated with you this year was a book that you reviewed, which I'd really love to hear about, which is Shannon Burns' autobiography. Yes, his memoir, Childhood, and mentioned by other people too, and I noted that in the Fairfax feature, Helen Garner praised it as her book of the year. I think this is in a class of its own in Australian memoir. I think it will become known as one of the greatest, most significant memoirs. Shannon, who is well known to ABR readers, he's been an ABR fellow in the past, a a long essay on Gerald Manane and his writing Manane's biography, but also reviews extensively. And in the January, February issue of ABR, we'll review Cormac McCarthy's two new novels. He's written a memoir called Childhood, the deliberately Tolstoyan title, Tolstoy's rather fanciful memoir, Childhood, being Shannon's favourite 
work of autobiography, as he told me in an ABR podcast. This is so very different from Tolstoy's Idyll and uh, tells a nightmarish story. That's the word that came to mind as I read it, of an abusive, uh, neglectful, tragic Philistine upbringing in an impoverished part of Adelaide that went kind of under the radar, undetected by authorities. And to me, there were two things, the shocking nature of what was done to Shannon from infancy through to about the age of 15, when he got the hell out and moved into a flat and took charge of his life. Abuse that took many forms, the usual ones, but also simply starvation, lovelessness, tossed from parent to step-parent to foster parent to the streets. But what to me was most kind of shaming in a way was this sense that we live in a country where I, I suppose large parts of government and society in a way do condemn a certain type of working class family and child to neglect and indifference. The problems seem just too hard for government to cope with. And there were so many times in this narrative when you almost stand up and think, you know, the child's difficulties were so obvious and yet no one ever really had the guts or the time, the compassion to step in and say this child must be separated from these people or this child must be fed or or given given shelter for all these reasons and also the quality of the prose because it's told very plainly without any self-pity and I do make the point in my review of this wonderful book that you know the misery memoir is everywhere and there's no trace of that kind of self-indulgence or self-pity in Shannon's book so I highly recommend Childhood it's published by text publishing and think it's a, a book that will certainly stay with readers stay with them in uncomfortable way which is what memoir should do I think if it's really working at a high level so thank it's you really for, thank you for prompting me uh, oh, no, it's just so palpable from your review how moved you were by that particular work. Yeah. What about you? A last one you'd like to mention? There is actually, and it's the conversations that Nick Cave has had over the pandemic with his longtime friend, Sean O'Hagan. And it's this incredible sort of platonic dialogue if Plato was a rock star and he was talking to a Guardian journalist. And it's this incredible this dialogue that they've had over sort of 40 hours of conversation that's sort of been drawn out about love and mercy and absolution and what it is that art can and should strive to do. And I really urge readers to listen to this book. There are some books that deserve to be heard and this is one of them because the conversations are reenacted by O'Hagan and by Cave and you get to have them in your head and to listen to these two extraordinary men have a real discourse about things that matter deeply to them about dignity and faith and what it is to grieve and any readers that subscribe to Nick Cave's newsletter the Red Hand Files will know that he is sort of doing one of the most generous and strange literary projects in Australia at the moment, answering questions about life, the universe and everything from readers in this unfiltered, deeply wild and and deeply generous way. But this book sort of distills that into a set of 
disquisitions on on what it means to make things in a world that's crumbling. And I was so moved by it, even when I disagreed with him, and perhaps especially when I disagreed with him because he was creating a conversational space about art and about life. And I think that's what I love about criticism and it's what I love about fiction and it's what I love about people who dare to make things. And so that I can't sort of recommend highly enough to sit and listen to his sort of ferocious creativity is quite a marvel. And interestingly, Rowan Williams, a former Archbishop of Canterbury, nominated Cave's book as his book of the year in The New Statesman in a recent feature, which had me thinking, I wonder if any Australian cleric would mention the work by by a pop star. But uh, then Rowan Williams is an exceptional person and a wonderful critic too. BJ Silcox, Frank Bongiorno, you've been so generous with your time in sharing some of your favourite books of the year. I thank you warmly. I wish you a fantastic Christmas and new year and all I can say is happy reading in 2023 and come back next year oh here's to good cheer and good books indeed thanks Peter thanks BJ thanks for listening to the Australian Book Review podcast join us again next week if you enjoyed this episode why not consider subscribing to ABR subscriptions start from just $10 a month for full digital access visit our website for more information. We'd like to thank Stacey Chan, who edits the podcast, as well as our contributors who take the time to read their articles and creative writing. And if you enjoy listening to the ABR podcast, please consider leaving us a review on iTunes.